you know, a number of years ago, um, when I was living in Colorado, uh, I guess I've got a number of illustrations I've shared from there, but, but uh, I had this, uh, this cabin in the mountains, which uh, I guess is kind of the dream, you know, you're going to live in Colorado, why not have a cabin in the mountains? But, uh, you know, it, um, it didn't have a deck on it, so I was going to build a deck. And, um, and I, I made really two mistakes in trying to build this deck. The first was that I had my son measure where the deck would go. And I had to submit, you know, the, the measurements and everything to the, uh, to the municipality so that I could get their approval and, and all this kind of thing. That was my first mistake. My second mistake was that I didn't double-check his measurement because he had measured this thing as though it were a massive deck. I mean, much, much larger than it was actually, you know, in, in real life. So I went to um, whatever it was, the planning department, and uh, presented them my plan and showed the measurements that my son had and, and all this kind of stuff on there. And they said, okay, <clears throat> great, you need to have this number of foundations, foundation uh, holes and the poles and everything else that goes into them. Um, and uh, all of that was so important that, you know, they would, they would come out and they would inspect the very holes before I would fill them up with concrete and, and put, the, uh, put the posts in there. And it turns out I had way more posts and way more holes than I needed. I mean, if a nuclear bomb were dropped on that cabin, there'd be two things that would survive, cockroaches and my deck. I mean, <laughs> uh, this thing was, was solid, let me tell you. But... Uh, you know, just like uh, they had to uh, inspect those holes and put so much emphasis on the foundation for this deck because it, it supports everything else that's built above it. Likewise, what we find in our lives to be foundational, I mean, that is really critical. That's really important. And today, when we read this passage, we begin a new series here for the summer on Second uh, Peter where... Um, it, it begins with faith, and faith is the very foundation, is what Peter is saying, for everything else in life. He says it this way. He says, uh, in Second Peter 1, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. So faith is the basis, faith is the foundation, and now we're going to build on that foundation this deck, this life, okay, on top of that. Add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. These are going to be the subjects we're going to talk about in the next weeks, okay? But today we begin with the foundation for this life. We begin with faith. He goes on to say, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who likes being ineffective in their life? You know, it's, it's kind of fun sometimes to just kind of veg out, be a couch potato, but not, you know, forever. You know, we, we want our life to count for something, right? So he says, you want your life to count for something? This is what you do. You begin with a foundation of faith. It all begins with that faith. Your house, the house of your life, is built on faith, if you want to be effective. And uh, now, everybody, no matter who they are, if they are a Christian or not, has faith. You cannot be a human being without faith. I mean, we have faith in all kinds of different things. You have faith in the elevator. When you push the button, then it's going to go where you want it to go. You've got you know, faith in all kinds of different things. 
Uh, if you want to go through life just kind of as a normal human being and not neurotic, you know, you've got to have faith in, in all kinds of different things. Name almost any function of human activity, and it's going to involve some kind of faith. Faith is what makes life happen. But Peter here is talking about a special kind of faith, a kind of faith that we're going to call godly faith. He says this as he begins the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He says this. He writes, Simon Peter, in other words, who's the one who's sending this letter? Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Now, sometimes I think we can take faith for granted. But in reality, faith is this precious jewel. It is something that you, you look at, especially these days, at so many people who did not have faith in our Lord, and you can see how precious this gift of faith really is. And here what he's saying is that this one is the, the same kind of faith that Peter himself has, which means the faith that you are given in Jesus is the same faith that caused Peter to walk on the water, that, caused, that, that led and, and empowered Peter to heal the lame man in the temple. That same faith, Peter says, knows God, has the power of God, and he goes on to say that this faith even lets us share in the divine nature of God. Now that gets a little weird, <laughs> On that one, it kind of sounds like we're supposed to be part of the Trinity or something like that, equal with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he's talking about. Instead, what he's saying is that we become godly, or we or, or we have a godly faith. Okay. So, question is, what is godly faith, and how do I recognize it? Well, to get at that, uh, there's a great story. Love this story in the Old Testament. Uh, about Elisha, the prophet. And it goes this way, that one day Elisha, uh, the prophet, was with his servant in a city when uh, the king of Aram's army surrounded the city for this one purpose, to kill Elisha. Because Elisha had become a thorn in their side. The king of Aram had gone to war against Israel, and every time he was setting a trap for the army of Israel Elisha would see in a vision what it was that he was going to do, and he would go and he would warn the king of Israel, and the trap would be foiled. His, his plans would be, would be spoiled to the, to the extent that the king of Aram believed that there must be a spy in his midst. So he brought all of his senior advisors and officers together, and he said, okay, which one of you? Which one of you is a spy? And they said, none of us. No, king. Instead, it is Elisha the prophet of Israel, the prophet of God who's in Israel. So the mighty Aramean army set out to find Elisha and kill him to do away with this secret weapon of Israel. Catch up with him in 2 Kings 6. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. And he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now this is a great story, really, that, that says, at the very least it says this. It says that God is for you. God is for you. And He loves you, and He has not abandoned you. That's a great thing. A tremendous thing. And we can unlock what the meaning of that is through the power of faith. Now, with faith, there's really, I think, two kinds of faith that we could possibly have in response to this story. The first kind of faith response goes something like this. When I get into trouble, this story tells me that God is watching out for me. It's great to know that God is there and will take care of me no matter what. Okay, that's, that's one kind of faith. I mean, that's a statement of faith, right? Okay, one kind of a faith. But who's that faith focused on? Me. Me, right? You might say that it is a self-centered kind of a faith. Now, God wants you to bring personal concerns to him. After all, when the blind man came to Jesus and he requested that he have his sight be given to him, Jesus did not scold him for having a self-centered faith, did he? Instead, what he did was he healed the man and he said, your faith has made you well. Faith is a powerful thing. God wants us to go to him because uh, that is honoring to God and it unleashes the force of heaven in our lives to do things that could not be done otherwise. So he wants that to happen. But there is a kind of faith these days that views God as kind of a divine Santa Claus or an insurance policy that is very self-centered. Where we are the customer, the boss, the one to be served. And God, well, God's job is to watch out for me and those I care about so that life is easy and nothing bad ever happens to us. That's a kind of faith. God is responsible, though, in this kind of faith for my happiness. So better not let me down, God. Life itself is about me. Value is determined by what others think about me. Happiness is determined by my circumstances. So God, you know what your job is. Make my circumstances good so that I might be happy. That's faith. But it's selfish faith. That leads to bad attitudes, to depression, and to a whole lot of navel-gazing. Now, Linda told me the other day about a family that she knew that uh, where it was a tragic story where the young son of the family was riding on this riding lawnmower with his dad, and he fell off the riding lawnmower. He got cut up by the blades, and he died. I mean, tragic story. And then she went on, and she said that uh, that family even then became really angry at God. And my response was, angry at God? But did God push him off the riding lawnmower? I mean, it didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Well, this family had doubled the tragedy that they experienced because not only was it the tragedy of the loss of this child, but now they had to make it through those days ahead by pushing God aside so that God was not there with them to walk them through the tragic circumstances. And why did they do this? 
because of the kind of faith that says, God, you let me down. You disappointed me. You didn't do your job, God. You know, you're supposed to make my circumstances and everything in my life, you know, a certain way so that you bring happiness. That is a foundation of sand. And when the storm hit, that faith doesn't hold up. But they weren't alone, really, in uh, temptation to have that kind of a faith. Instead, there are many people who do, and uh, Jesus was even tempted to have this kind of a faith. When uh, Satan tempted him in the wilderness, and by the way, yes, indeed, Satan does tempt people to have faith. It sounds like kind of a strange thing, doesn't it? Satan tempts people to have faith. But he tempts them to have the wrong kind of faith because that replaces the kind of faith that really has the power of God. And with this kind of a faith, uh, well, you know, let's, let's take a look at this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, just a portion of that temptation in the wilderness. We're a familiar story, but it says that the tempter came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan wanted Jesus to focus on himself, his own hunger, his own needs, his very human wants, his desires, you know, popularity, uh, uh, you know, power, authority, might, all these kinds of things will be yours. But instead, Jesus responded with a godly faith by turning back to the Word and to center on the Father Himself. And that's the kind of faith that Peter talks about, which is godly faith. And this kind of faith orients around God It orients around God instead of the self. Where worth for you, the human being, is based on God's love for you. It's not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon what other people think about you. Instead, it's based in God's love for you. With this faith, you can look at the story of Elisha differently. Okay, we're back there with Elisha and his servant, and uh, uh, he's looking out, and he sees this, this mighty army of God that's surrounding the city. Now the question is this. Why was that army of God there? Why was that army of God there? It's because it was surrounding Elisha. Because Elisha, with his godly faith, was determined to be at the center of God's will. And as the Blackabees said in Experiencing God, the safest place you can be is at the center of God's will. And where else would God's army be but surrounding the center of God's will? Which means that if you want to have that army, that, that army of God surrounding you, it means to focus on God with a godly faith so that you are at the center of His will. And what, what Elisha was doing with his servant was asking that his eyes be opened so that he can see what the ramifications are of being at the center of God's will. Then you have this faith that can move mountains, as Jesus was talking about. Godly faith focuses on God. Now, one example of a godly faith like this comes from the life of one of the greatest novelists of all time. The Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky. Now, for some of us, we may not have heard that name since school. Some of us, maybe we've never heard of it at all. 
You know, the, and the reason why I like this guy as a novelist beyond the story I'm going to tell you is that he's got the most fun name to say of any novelist I know. You know, but, but here is the story that if you uh, maybe have read some of his books or studied him in school or something like that, that maybe you didn't know about him as I tell you the rest of the story, okay? Early in his life, Dostoevsky got mixed up with the wrong crowd. He was arrested, and he was sent to a labor camp in Siberia. Talk about lousy circumstances, okay? Many people did not make it through the labor camps in Siberia. They would give up hope. They would die because they were terrible places to be. There in the labor camp, he had some time, some time for some serious soul-searching, and a woman gave Dostoevsky a Bible so that in the labor camp, he read the Bible. And there as he read the pages of the Bible, he discovered a God who loves him, a God who makes life worth living, even in a place like that. A self-centered faith is bound not to the Lord for happiness, but to its circumstances. So how could anyone in these kinds of circumstances possibly continue to have faith or even discover faith as Dostoevsky did? Discover faith in God. But his faith was a godly faith centered not a around himself or around his circumstances, but instead it was centered around Jesus himself. He discovered a God worth living for. He discovered a God who loved him, even when it seemed that all love was gone. And it was that godly faith that was his foundation for the rest of his life, so that in time Dostoevsky was released from the labor camp. He was allowed to write which led to the novels that he wrote. And eventually, at the ripe old age of 60 years old, he was on his deathbed. He called his children to his side where he gave his final words. And his children then went on to write what transpired and what he said. His children wrote of this moment these words. They said, He made us come into the room. And taking our little hands in his, he begged my mother to read the parable of the prodigal son. So picture that parable and what that talks about with the father welcoming the prodigal son home. He listened with his eyes closed, absorbed in his thoughts. My children, he said in his feeble voice, never forget what you have just heard. Have absolute faith in God and never despair of his pardon. I love you dearly, but my love is nothing compared to the love of God. Even if you should commit some dreadful crime, never despair of God. You are his children. Humble yourselves before him as before your father. Implore his pardon, and he will rejoice over your repentance as the father rejoiced over that of the prodigal son. To this day, Dostoevsky is studied by people who consider themselves to be atheists because he is considered to be a master in what he did with his life. Because his life was a life that mattered, as he would say, because it was built on this faith, this godly faith. 
This godly faith is the beginning point for Peter. It's the beginning point for us as we have this journey this summer, this uh, foundational point for a life well lived. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be learning about building that deck, building that house, building that life on this foundation of faith. So is faith enough? Well, it is a beginning, a foundation when it's a godly faith. Now, the test for you this evening to know if you have this kind of faith or you want to seek this kind of faith is this. You know the Lord's Prayer, okay? When you say, Thy will be done, Your will be done, God, are the strings attached? Or are you happy about it being His will that's being done? That's godly faith.